Welcome to the World Art Now podcast, exploring the world through the material culture of its people, in association with Michael Backman Limited. Hi, it's Michael Backman, and I'm here with Sarah, Sarah Corbett, and uh, we thought today we would discuss currency, and uh, uh, particularly African currency objects. We often have them in the gallery, and uh, they're terribly interesting because they're, they're kind of currency and they're kind of not, and, and that, that's what's interesting about them. Um, Sarah, what, um, what's been your experience with these sorts of currencies? Well, I would frequently come across pieces of jewellery which are very robust, heavy metal objects from Africa, mm. and so I was aware of those as currency within the field of the jewellery that I handle regularly. But what I wasn't aware of is that there are so many other pieces, objects made mainly of metal, but not always, that were used for the same purpose. Yeah, that, that, that's true. So, um, so a lot of the currencies that traditionally were used in Africa um, were, were based on something else. So, as you say, jewellery and, and so on, and, and um, there are currencies I know that I've seen which are based on spades and, and agricultural implements. And, of course, weapons. There, there are weapon currencies. And these are the sorts of currencies that were used um, in... Well, in two broad areas, really, in Africa. One was the, 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 the large West and Central African region, and uh, the other part, if you were to divide up Africa into two main currency-type regions, was the East and, and, and uh, Southern Africa uh, section. Um, I, I, and I think the sort of currencies we're, we're talking about were not really used in Northern Africa, in the Maghreb, so it's more south of that. Now, these sorts of currencies... Um, kind of what, like one step up from barter. So um, I, in their most primitive form of, of trading, you would, you know, turn up with uh, in, in a market perhaps with some chickens or something and then trade it for something that you needed, like yams or carrots or something like that. And um, and then eventually agricultural implements might have been usable, or things made of iron and, and so on. So instead of bartering um, directly, you would be bartering with almost a, a substitute. So they're kind of a currency but not quite a currency. These, these are implements that became used as currencies. I think there's this um, point where there's a crossover into items that can be stored wealth in the way that Mm. yams or chickens can't be long-term transferable stored wealth. And these metal objects are used to buy land, to buy livestock in larger numbers. And different objects have different degrees of value to be used for different types of purchases. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And, and, of course, that is one of the defining characteristics of a good currency is, a, is uh, as a store of wealth and a store of value over time. Um, and uh, I, I think when the Europeans uh, turned up in the early days uh, of colonialisation and so on and, and they tried to buy things with, with currency notes, and naturally, African people wouldn't accept them because they didn't understand it. They 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 didn't have a, like a history of this. There's no purpose or value to no, them in their cultural no, context. and no trust. And I think trust is important when it comes to currency, as we see today. Um, 
uh, we in in Western style countries, developed economies, we we trust our currencies by and large because we know that the governments are generally not printing madly and debasing the currency. So there's a mutually understood uh, idea of trust, and so we're happy to hold it and pass it on and and uh, buy things with it and accept it from the government. Whereas in the past, I, I think when uh, the Europeans turned up, obviously, uh, to Africa and, and uh, tried to ex uh, get the locals to accept their currencies, well, then there was no system of trust. They, they didn't know how to trust this. So, but one of the beauties of, of um, uh, like a commodity-backed type currency, um, which is what we're talking about with African currencies when the items were actually made of something quite useful, such as iron or copper, is that there is an, uh, an intrinsic value to, to the currency. And it's absolutely tangible at the point of exchange. Someone can see this is this much iron of use to me for this. Exactly. As well as its currency. Exactly. So it's in, it's in the way that, uh, that, in the fashion that, uh, or the style, I guess in, from medieval times uh, in Europe, uh, gold and silver was used. And then later, uh, when they switched to currency notes, those notes were backed by gold or silver. And then in the, uh, I think the 1930s and so on, there was a delinking between um, having um, our currencies backed by base metals and, and so on. So it's not... Um, I mean, it's quite it's it, it's quite reasonable for for people originally to have been suspicious of these uh, non tangible types of currencies. Um, what is interesting also in, in Africa is that uh, the currencies that were being produced uh, were never produced by any sort of central authority and 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 no uh, certainly not not an arm of the state. There there wasn't like a state mint minting these things. They were privately produced. And absolutely regional and um, mm. tribal group to tribal group would mm. have their own significant objects that they preferred to use as currency, which were interchangeable as um, a currency and widely yes. traded, but yes. they particularly belonged to one cultural group. Yes, yes, and and as they needed to trade uh, with one another, then eventually they would start to swap them, and then the currencies uh, would have wider circulation. And uh, but usually it was still quite geographic. Um, but uh, and and then when uh, more say copper was found, like in the Congo, which was uh, became quite rich, it was found to be rich with copper. Uh, we had currency based. Um, items uh, being exchanged. So they're essentially like ingots uh, that were often made in the sand uh, with, with a crude, uh, relatively crude sand casting and so on. And these became like coins, but the one thing that they never were was small. They were never tiny. They were often huge. And I think the, the Tapoke people in, uh, in the Congo ended up having currency... Uh, uh, currency blades, which were much bigger than a normal blade, they they were they were almost as tall as big as, as yeah, as tall as a person, and I believe that um, these sorts of blades, these currency blades, were then used to transact um, uh, transactions uh, for land um, and, and even for a bride, uh, uh, like maybe ten or so could buy you a bride. Um, and uh, seven or so could buy you a plot of land. It, it was it was like that. Um, and in parallel to them being used as a trade item, absolutely the dowry situation. Right. If a family is giving up a daughter, then they're compensated with currency items. Mm. And also for rites of passage, um, when you're coming of age, you're married, death, um, 
riches would need to be transferred to somebody else. And that happened through these pieces of currency objects and they were distributed amongst relatives or appropriately to that rite of passage. Yeah, so so there are two, I guess there were two types, main types of, of themed currencies. One was, as you were started off by, by talking about, uh, jewellery-derived um, currencies and, and then uh, another one is probably weapons-derived um, currencies. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and tools. Yeah, well, tools, that exactly, look yes. like they were tools but yes. became elevated yes. and then they become art forms. So yes. it starts off by looking like it's a blade or a spade or a hoe and eventually it becomes augmented by someone's creativity mm. and it would never be possible to use that item now as a utility piece and yes. it has completely crossed over into being purely about use for currency. Yes, that, that's exactly right. Um, most of the currencies uh, so defined that we see, which are based on something else, are actually quite impractical, impractical for, for use. But they still have that—they uh, that, still have the metal value, the intrinsic value of being—you could melt them down and then actually make them into something useful. But as you were saying, uh, you know, a lot of the weapons-based uh, currencies were utterly useless as weapons. And as I was talking about before, the Topolke people's uh, currency blades, which were just so large, but they're also quite thin, um, and you, you couldn't possibly use them. And almost, it's interesting to sort of think, is this an early form of inflation? Uh, that You start off with a small thing, and it became, it, they just became increasingly over the top. And impressive, and yes. therefore desirable. And it, it fascinates me, that crossover, where someone felt that, you know, is this amount of metal... And it used to be a hoe to mm, us, but mm, we're going to mm. elevate it into something that's a piece of art. Yes. And therefore, its intrinsic value mm. was increased because it's desirable. And of course, it wasn't just Africa where this phenomenon occurred. It also occurred, for example, in Borneo with the Dayak people, uh, who were uh, casting very large... Um, some of them are so large that they're actually hard to uh, carry. Uh, so viewers and teapots and things like that. And, and also cannons, they're called lantaka. And uh, these are made of, of bronze and, and brass. And these ended up being traded, but most particularly stored as a form of wealth. And so you would often go, in, you'd go into a longhouse and just see rows and rows and rows of, of these cannons. And most of them got to the point where you couldn't possibly fire one. Uh, they, they were really not, uh, not for that. They were just made to be for owned. Yeah, and for status and to show off your wealth. And it was the same with these massive bronze kettles that were being produced. They're now very decorative. We, we often see them here in the UK because the UK, having been the, the, the colonial power in Borneo, a lot of these were brought back. And what's interesting now is that um, they're considered um, still quite valuable heirloom items in Borneo and amongst Dayak people and other type Iban people and so on. And uh, But uh, they've stopped making them, but the population has increased and so there's a lot fewer to go around, so the value's gone up. And what I've actually found is that um, some of them come from Borneo here to, to buy them, to, to take them back. So uh, they return to the cultural significance they, yes. in the role that they were always designed for. Yeah, and, and uh, so they can be passed on to the children as part of their cultural heritage. It's nice that that awareness is still there within the culture mm. and understood and that there's a thirst to continue mm. it.
something else that you know, the colonial aspect, the manilas used in ah, West Africa. Um, I'm aware of three different types. There's a manila that's made from um, a round piece of tubular metal or and, bar. Yeah, what we should say is what manilas are too, that there's like of a... Of course. Yeah, like a C-form bracelet type looking thing. They are. With is, a are they based on a bracelet? End. Sometimes they're too small to be a bracelet mm. and they must just be a token yes. of that amount. Yes. But these were produced in the UK and in France right, to right. trade mm. with West Africa. Mm. Um, and the ones that were European and UK originating were made from round bar. And then there's a Queen Manila, which was produced in West Africa, which is made from a square bar, which has had the same treatment, oh, yes. but from a square bar of metal. Yes. And then there's a... Are they twisted? So that's the third one. That's the ah, King right, Manila. Sorry. So Jumping that's ahead. the best of all the Manilas. Yes, yes. And yet the square bar has been twisted. Yes. And then the ends are flattened into Oh, indeed, applied yes. Discs. We had uh, a pair of these in our last catalogue, actually. These yeah, are, um, yeah, these are the the top of the tree when it comes to West African manilas. And so there's even, without there being a numerical value, as we would understand it on currency, there's an implied um, hierarchy of value right. from the imported ones from the UK and from France were the lowest value. And then the locally made square bar ones were higher value and the ones with the spiral twist in the bars were the absolute top of right, the tree value-wise, right, right. just within that one area. Right. And the other thing that I think is worth mentioning is sometimes it's not metal, which really surprised me when I found out because I thought it was just limited within metal objects. But the um, Kuba used raffia cloth as a currency. Oh, Yes. And the Yoruba use mm. gourds decorated mm. with coins, European mm. coins usually, mm. or colonial coins, and make trees to suspend those coins on, which the trees themselves are a currency object, as are the coins that hang from them. Mm. I suppose, yes, that um, it's hard to really... Um have very strict boundaries about what is a currency and what is not because there are there's a lot of blurring um, um, at the margins and some things are clearly currency like a coin and then there are other items which are kind of trade goods which were became treated um, um, as if they're a currency but it, it, in some respect it's a little bit like what happens even today um, uh, in New York or when we're trading in futures for, for wheat or something like that and then these can be traded on uh, the, the the future can be traded as if it is a currency, okay. um, so it's a similar thing. But and again, it's a currency. I mean, sorry, it's a, it's a commodity backed type currency. Um, there were some particularly interesting models to me. Things that really made me smile when I was looking into this. In Sierra Leone, the Kissy people have. Um, very fine pins with a disc on top that look like some fantastical type of fungi. I thought they were um, an interesting shape that had developed. And in the Gabon, Bafia people have this huge iron club-like form that's just heavy and quite cumbersome, and they're known as potato mashers. Oh, really? They're just for bashing things up. Oh, good heaven. Okay, <laughs> right. So probably you could use them to, to sort of mash up a, a sweet potato, I guess. I guess, uh, yes. 
but mm. the different variances of creativity that bring different forms and shapes in different areas is, you know, it's obviously an excellent area of collecting. There are so many variations. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and they're not that expensive. That's, that's the other thing. Accessible, um, yeah. Yeah, they're exa- yes, they're accessible. And uh, they're terribly, terribly interesting uh, because they're, they're decorative. They're often very sculptural, so they're great to display. Uh, but they have these incredible stories, and I often feel with these sorts of things that you know sh- something needs to pass the dinner party test, where <laughs> why you've got people for dinner, and and someone says, oh, what what's this that you've got sitting here, and then you tell them, and suddenly you bring the item alive with a story, and yep. you can tell them the story of trade and Africa and uh, trade within Africa between ethnic groups and, and so on, and also the fact that um, these uh, currencies were often derived uh, from locally produced sourced um, uh, minerals and uh, such as copper and and so on as well as the imported uh um, manilas as you were saying coming from portugal france and uh, and the uk and and so on i think so also the character that comes through with all the different forms there's there's mm. a product a base product usually a metallic base product that someone has and they want to represent a valued piece for trading and such a diverse amount of designs yes. have come through from different groups. And within a different cultural group, there's um, often a cohesion of style. Yes. But those styles are so diverse. Snake-like coiling armbands through to the huge tall spears that you mentioned. Um, it's just a fascinating area with so many different pieces to add to your awareness or your collection i can see why um it becomes quite an all-consuming passion for people to see Mm. and understand and appreciate the art of these things as well as their function indeed and what's fascinating also is is the fact that these were private currencies these were not minted by governments there was no overall central authority uh, and I know in the 20th century, a lot of economists have, um, you know, uh, got into the idea of privately minted, uh, privately produced currencies. And of course, where are we today? We're, we're looking at cryptocurrencies, yeah. which are privately produced currencies. They have nothing to do with government. So um, it's just the wheel keeps turning and turning and turning. Uh, it reminds me actually also when um, Australia was first uh, settled by Europeans and uh, it took a long time for currencies to be minted there, and but they needed something to, to, to be um, uh, produced locally to, for, you know, as a medium of exchange. And so often a shop would produce its own tokens and then um, another shop or another business would produce tokens and so there was all manner of, this is pre-Federation in the 19th century, all manner of private tokens were being minted and struck uh, which were not being uh, done under the auspices of a, of a central mint or, or the government. It was simply people coming up with a private solution that didn't involve government and, uh, and printing, essentially not printing, but minting their own, their own currency. Creating a way to do fair trade with people exactly. at whatever scale was appropriate to their product. Indeed. Well, I think that, you know, Bitcoin is on the rise, but I don't think it's as beautiful as many of the uh, currency pieces. <laughs> no, well, I, I think so. It's fair to say I've never seen a Bitcoin, exactly. and I don't think anyone has. So <laughs> it turns out. Hide inside a hard drive. <laughs> no, so, I'd much rather have a set of iron crosses than a Bitcoin. Oh, I think so. I think so. I think, so. I, I think we can agree more. on that. I, so let, let's say that uh, digital coins are, are just not attractive. They're just not art. No, indeed. Well, thanks. That, that's been fantastic. Yeah, it's been fun to explore the topic with you, Michael. Okay. Okay.
You have been listening to the World Art Now podcast in association with Michael Backman Limited. To hear more, visit worldartnow.com.